Hello and welcome to the Educate Norfolk podcast. Great to have you with us again. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Jonathan Rice. I'm the head teacher at Caister Infant and Junior Schools and I'm joined as ever by Sarah Shiros from St Williams. Afternoon, Jonathan. Good afternoon, Sarah. Here we are then at the end of the third oh, week back. Only week three. Yes. Only week three and it feels like week... 33, 103, Maybe. a lot Maybe. more than three. And yet also, week after week feels like exactly the same, doesn't it? Yeah, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we, Jonathan, that actually the operational stuff is so important and the detail of that. But instead of getting up every day and thinking, what does today bring? It probably mm. brings much the same as Absolutely. yesterday, which is a good thing because nothing awful has happened, no. nothing horrendous has happened. However... Usually our job is a bit more varied than this, Absolutely. is that fair? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, spending every morning and afternoon standing on the playground. And I have to say today was probably the wettest gating day I've ever had in my career. Yeah, so we're in the middle of this, what would you call this, monsoon hurricane on... on Biblical on the... proportions. Absolutely, which hopefully will have cleared up by the time you're listening to this, dear listener. So, but no cases, no positive cases. No, so we've had some close, some in schools where I know the heads well and... Um, I have to say they've been very, very impressively managed, um, but none at our school and, and testing a lot better this week, much quicker, much more efficient, so yeah. therefore a lot less anxiety than there were in families last week. Yeah, that's certainly improved. We've got a case just to, at a school just to the south of us here at Caister, and then there's another positive case at a school just to the north of us, so we feel like the wagons are circling around us a little bit, and it's only a matter of time before it happens. And but I guess that's, that's this, just the next challenge, isn't it? What what how is the school community going to react when they hear that first member of staff or child has, has tested positive? So, but interestingly, there's one in each school. There's only one school yes. in Norfolk where there's been more than one, which means the school is not the focus of that, or if it is, we don't know that. Um, but most of those school communities seem to be quite calm about it. Really. Yeah, they do. Um, I do worry for the families where they were anxious about resending or haven't resent, that if there's one in the community, then we might lose the ones that have come back mm. and not get back mm. the ones we're hoping to. Um, because obviously there's real anxiety in some families still, and that might increase it. But um, so far, so good in our schools. Although I still haven't got an answer to my question. Perhaps epidemiologists at home can tell me why this is right. Virologists, yeah. not epidemiologists. Yeah. Both. I appeared them. with one, didn't I, recently? Oh, you They're did. virologists. <laughs> Back to your media, glittering media crowd. Now, why if all these measures we're putting in place in schools? are working has a cold gone around the, every school in Norfolk in the first fortnight like wildfire every kid's got this cold every member of staff's got this cold if washing your hands and all the sanitizing and all the one-way systems and everything's working how did they all get the cold how did the cold get transmitted well we have been quite close together certainly I can't promise my reception children have been keeping social distance and they haven't seen anybody for months so I think it just shows that Having a low level of infection is a good thing, mm. rather than being so yeah. sanitised that it's coming out of every pore of your body. Okay, well, perhaps we'll find out the answer to that as time goes on. And educate Norfolk leadership updates this yep, week. Yeah, we leading. Well, unintentionally guests. leading them. So we had um, first one yesterday or Thursday, which went really, really well. Um, we were very clear with the people who were taking part that it had to be relevant to now, that it couldn't be bigger thinking or data from some uh, test or other it needed to be about now which was went really well and some new and exciting things um poor jess today was supposed to chair again and uh, had to close her school because of weather related chaos um so i had to step in there but really good really positive feedback um well over 120 people at the two meetings really good contributions from 
Chris Snudden and Kelly Waters around the sort of practical side of things, and then from um, Roger and Brian um, at Notre Dame around some really good offers of support, and then from Jonathan Nice and Victoria Groom. So if you haven't heard them, they're all available on the Educate Norfolk website, and not just for school leaders, but actually for other people in school communities yeah. too. Yeah, I, I, I tuned in yesterday. Take part particularly, just uh, uh, just listened, and I found it absolutely really, really valuable, really, really useful. Yeah, particularly, John Nice's bit was really good about remote learning, wasn't it? Because yeah. I think that's very, very lots of heads were saying they were the best ones yet. So yeah. I just think where people were, they they tuned into the right place. So that yeah. was good. Great content. Good. Okay, right, let's move on and welcome our special guest today. Hooray for Yay! Mark Adams. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mark. I have to say, I have been looking forward to having Mark on for two years. Two years, Mark? Is that how long you've been away? Yes. Where on earth have you been? So uh, two years ago, in the end of July, I went to China. I went to Hong Kong, um, where the organisation I was working for are based. And then I worked in China for, for two years because the schools that I was responsible for were in Shanghai and Beijing. So having been away for two years, Mark, the last few months of your time, they must have been more than slightly unexpected. Yes, I mean, I, was, I came home at Christmas for two weeks and then I went back for three weeks uh, and I went back to um, Hong Kong then I went to Beijing, then I went to Shanghai, then I went to Beijing, then I flew back to England for Chinese New Year because it was cheap to do so. So when I went back in the first day of February, the second day of February, I was immediately on the Wednesday, supposed to be going to Chongqing, and then all flights got pulled, everything got changed. So from the 1st of February through to the end of June, I was stuck in Hong Kong and couldn't move. Some of that time I was working in a hotel room, um, which wasn't great. Um, people that know me know I'm quite tight. And so what I was trying to do was save as much money as possible. Everybody else who works for the company has an apartment. They're extraordinarily expensive. But I decided to use Travago and move from one hotel to another. So I lived like that wherever I was. Um, so some of the hotels that I got were inexpensive and that meant they were very small, a tiny room. If you don't know Mark Adams, he's not a small person. 24-7 in a hotel room was hard, working with an uh, internet connection uh, with schools in China. So I was doing my job from a hotel room for most of the time between... February and June. Sometimes we were allowed back into the office and I worked from there. Um, and then the last two months, I was back in charge of a school in Beijing. So I was the co-principal of a school in Beijing, running it remotely. And some of that time people were in Beijing, in school, as you know, face-to-face <laughs> uh, -face learning. Um, which was tough without any Western staff there or very few Western staff there. But then national, international news was the outbreak at a wet market. And so we got the instruction at 10 to 11 that nobody must turn up at school at 8 o'clock the next morning. And nobody did. So we phoned people all night 
all the staff, all the children. And there were government officials outside the school to make sure nobody turned up and nobody did. So then we went back to online learning again for the end of it. And we did some school. So it's really interesting. Um, not the end, I hope. I, would, I know we'll come back to China and, and things that you've learned from that amazing experience, but just listening to you then, it does amaze me that you could come and go in January from China to mm. here and back again, mm. which I think, you know, given what was already happening, given that the COVID-19 is called 19, so therefore started in mm. 19, it does seem quite incredible. I was wearing a mask and um, we were all masked up and following precautions, take temperatures every day anyway, even before COVID we took temperatures every day um, that was part of the routine in Beijing um, so when I was in Beijing flying back to England I flew through uh, Warsaw um, some Polish airline and we landed in Warsaw and they said don't get off the plane <laughs> <laughs> and it was very tense yeah, yeah. Uh, because I thought I was going to be stuck in Warsaw because it became apparent that somebody behind me was exhibiting symptoms. And so we had to, you know, where you wait for the permission mm. to get off. That was like an hour. That was a long time. And we were filling in mm. our details on a form saying, wait, and we had all these people in has suits come past us you know, and carry this person out. I'm thinking, oh no, but they let us go. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What an experience. Okay, well, we're going to come back to uh, China as as the conversation goes on um, a little bit later, if we can. I'd hazard a guess most of our listeners will know Mark really well from his time in headship in Norfolk and, and particularly from HSP, which I just want to touch on as well. But And that's why I'm sure <clears throat> so many people are going to be pleased to hear from you in this episode, but can you can you just run through your career, Mark, and just tell us how you got to where you got to? Um, so I, I was brought, brought up in uh, Felixstowe, and uh, I wasn't very bright at school, and so I only did two A-levels. So I had lots of time to go from my sixth form to a local junior school, which shared the same school grounds. So I went over there two days a week and did, like, teaching practice, and then I went off to be a te uh, teacher training college, which is the worst one in the country where you only needed one A-level to get into it. And then I got that and then got a job back at the place where I've been doing teaching practice with just a B-Ed. Um, last round, able to just leave with a B-Ed without the honours. And uh, stayed there and then went to a school in Ipswich, which was an amazing experience, a very tough school in Ipswich called Witten. Anybody that knows that area of Ipswich. And then I went up to um, near York. I, I got this job in New York, near York, in a place called Holmes Spotting Moor. And I was interviewed at eight o'clock at night on a uh, October half term Tuesday night. And it turned out that the chair of governors was a potato farmer and he couldn't arrive any earlier. So that's <laughs> when I had to be interviewed. All this time. And then while I was there, I wanted to teach infants. And they said I could teach infants. What they didn't tell me was that I couldn't teach infants because there was a few other people in the queue before me. So then the, the head teacher went off to tell everybody about this new thing called LMS, local <gasps> management school. So the deputy became the head teacher. You couldn't make this up because then he miscounted the number of children in the nursery. So we were uh, in deficit. So somebody had to be redeployed. So I volunteered 
Everybody's very grateful to me and the staff for them to be redeployed. So I was redeployed to this, this school at Burton Agnes near Bridlington. And I replaced a deputy head, but they didn't have enough money for a deputy head. And the head teacher was a lovely lady, but she didn't know anything about computers and didn't like going to meetings and arrived at school after the children in the morning. <laughs> so then she, she said, OK, I'm going to resign, Mark. You can be the head teacher. And they said, but he's far too young. So the chair of governors, who's the local vicar, said he can't be the head teacher. He's too young. Anyway, they couldn't find anybody else. So I was the uh, head <laughs> teacher for Mark? one. 20... <laughs> so I, um, I, I did the job as acting head teacher and then they advertised the job. I applied for it, look, people looked around the school and they did an appointment to the job. And then the Hull Daily Mail, which is the local paper up there, ran the story that uh, it was only a small school, like 80 students, 12 students left the school because they didn't get the job. Um, so this was headline on there. Anyway, I went to another school, a very small school near... Um, near Howden and was a head teacher there of 37 uh, students and then I went to a school at the other side of Hull called Eden which is an Inman's primary school I was there I loved it in Yorkshire East Yorkshire was Humberside when I was there but uh, my wife and family uh, wanted to get back closer to the other family members so we Moved and lived in Southwold and then bought a house in Raiden. So we were midway between Felixstowe and Great Yarmouth where I got a job. And I was in Great Yarmouth from January 2000 till the end of 2016. Then I went uh, and was fortunate enough to work for Norfolk County Council as a leadership advisor. I worked with Steve Godston and then I applied for the job. I can't remember what it's called. FGAS or something. So it was vulnerable um, children's service. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, looking it was, after vulnerable yeah, children. Yeah. So it was looking after special educational needs, um, children with hearing and sight disability, um, gypsy roma traveller, and uh, excluded children. So it worked out. I mean, eighteen of the twenty-one thousand were SEN, but about twenty-one thousand students of the hundred and twenty thousand mm. students there. Norfolk. So it's an amazing opportunity. I never got outstanding. I got good a couple of times, but uh, in 20, I don't even remember what, 12, it should be embedded in my memory, 11, something like that. It's yeah. a good job if you've ever missed it. I got um, the school got put into special measures. This is St Nicholas Priory in Yarmouth, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> which was a huge blow. I'd been doing MPQH and other stuff around the country and indeed in China and in Ghana. You taught me in MPQH. Yeah, Bobby. that's exactly how old I am. <laughs> probably, probably wouldn't have known I was in the room as some young whippersnapper. You've had hair then, Jonathan. I'm about two years younger than Mark, uh, dear listener. And, and then <laughs> I couldn't do that anymore, but... Um, Dominic, who was at Sheringham Primary, was a really good friend with me. He was assigned to our school uh, because the school was in special measures. So he came and helped. And then he very kindly uh, asked me to be a partner when they became a teaching school and lead on leadership. And so I wrote something called the... What did I, what Head Teacher called? Support yeah. Programme. It was going to be called uh, HRT, but we didn't <laughs> appropriate. So. I've completely, my mind's gone blank, but Head Teacher Support yeah. Programme. And then we did something called the Leading Teacher Support Programme, which 
just good like deputies or people who yeah. were the second in command in small schools. And then I did one round of thing for people who were in charge of um, more than one school. So I, re I really enjoyed that. I tried to make it as practical as possible. And then when I got to China, I wrote a program similar to that, but based on stuff that's happening in China. So training people, working with people, supporting people was what I was really passionate about. So the HSP is still something referred back to by many heads Absolutely. in Norfolk. Um, about three years ago, when we had that Ipsos survey around leadership in Norfolk schools, the main thing that people had said that had helped them, the only thing that was actually really named clearly was HSP. Um, so just tell us a little bit, you had some really clear... Um, principles behind it. It wasn't necessarily how it panned out, but it didn't stop its effectiveness around, you know, the, the program itself and the, having mentors attached to it. But it was, a, you know, a, you say you've built on that with your experience in China. So tell us. How, it had to be came. really, really practical. So I wanted to base it in a school rather than at a training venue. Um, it had to be based in any school. It didn't have to be an outstanding school or even a good school. So it could be based in any school, and you'd be in there for the whole day and part of that day would be walking around the school so that you'd spend time getting to know other schools, pinching ideas, which I think a lot of people learn from. Mm. And then it was uh, having two sorts of input, perhaps one from the head teacher of that school and one from somebody in the local authority who had a particular expertise around data or Ofsted inspections or whatever. So it had a focus so we tried to make it so that it, it was like, I compared it with a dartboard, which wasn't very sensible, but it, because when you're doing a dartboard, you're trying, when you're playing darts, you're trying to get triple 20 or whatever. And actually I was looking at it as you're trying to get bullseye. So in terms of a head teacher, you've got multiple jobs to do, but you need to focus on the most important things. So. The seven or eight days were focused on what I believed were the most important things you should focus your time and effort on. And we try and then we set something called homework, which I fundamentally don't agree with, but the idea was that it would be of practical use to you and it would be something you would do anyway rather than have to do just as a requirement of the course. So it wasn't validated in any way the course, but you know, if we talked about what are your values, then you'd go and say, okay, what are the school values and how do we express them and how are they coming out in the life of the school? So you'd go back and do some work on that or a pupil progress meeting or whatever you called it at the time. Um, so it was going back and doing something like that. Then you'd come back and rather than be accountable to the person who was leading it, you'd be accountable to your little triplet of people you were talking to. And again, some of the best things of it came from people who, for example, came to St Nicholas Priory but were working in Kingsley. And they said, but that's miles away. And they said, OK, we'll make an effort. You don't need to do it one time. And they'd come over, perhaps spend a night in a hotel, go out for a drink the night before, come to it and really make connections and stuff that just made them feel great. I think it was the, the, the visits to other schools, looking around other schools, understanding their systems, as you said, pinching ideas, and also, but the connections you made with other head teachers. And I've been thinking a lot about that over these last three weeks and your point about every day feeling the same a little bit. That's something I really miss, being able to visit other schools, meet other head teachers, learn from what they're doing. 
And uh, one of the other things I keep coming back to is when we have meetings online, mm. that's great when you've got a built relationship with people already. It's great when you know who they are and you can joke about Bristol Rovers leading to Ipswich twice in the last two weeks. Thanks, Mark. But you can joke you know, and have that human contact. But if you've mm. never met them and had mm. that human contact first, actually online stuff is not going to build those relationships, no. I don't think. And Mark, you probably don't know this, but when we have head teachers meetings last year, the year before, often you'd see a table. And the reason those people had chosen to sit together was because they knew each other yeah. and had kept the relationships that HSP had bought. So the peer part of it became absolute to me and to people who feed back from it. Uh, and I, I was privileged to be involved in quite a lot of the cohorts of that. And so I know quite a lot of those people, but their relationships with each other and their trust. And that's the thing to me that was so key because they were the, the schools they went to, there was warts and all. You say they weren't perfect by any stretch, but their learning from each other wasn't about perfection. It was about the reality of running a school. And that trust, I don't think, has gone away from many of those people that you led through HSP. Yeah. I really enjoyed doing it in China. Obviously, in China, it's a bit different because mm. it makes Norfolk look quite small. You know? <laughs> so you didn't just, you didn't have to go in your car or yeah. catch a train. You had to get a plane to get there. So we'd go to somewhere like Qingdao, famous for the beer. Uh, it's pronounced the same spell differently. But, you know, everybody would fly in on the Sunday and then we'd stay in the same hotel and uh, then Monday go to the school in Qingdao, start at 8 o'clock in the morning, go right through the full day till 6 o'clock and then 6 o'clock go out for a meal together and then get up the next morning, start again at 8 o'clock in the morning, finish at 2 and then people had to go straight to the airport to fly back mm -hmm. so that they were ready to teach in their school in um, in the following day on the Wednesday and we did four lots of two days so we did an eight day program and all the people in Norfolk were worried about was whether we we're going to park that was the biggest problem <laughs> with HSB <laughs> is their parking but the fact that you took that model of learning is really exciting you know the fact that you were mm. had the position and the trust to do that but learning from each other and learning in each other's school context is yeah best and it's going to be a long year if we can't do that I think no and we no, have I, I we'll have to find another way of doing that I think what this, this model of um, online learning, mm. or online meetings does, it, it goes back to this didactic stuff. Yeah. And, and what I did wasn't what I said, it was what I facilitated. Mm. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's the relationship between people that's really important and what they saw rather than what I stood up at the front and told yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and at the minute, we're getting a lot of yeah. telling mm. and there's very little feedback and there's very little interaction. Very I tried running a staff meeting. It is just like talking into a talking into an empty space, isn't it? It's like talking I can't, into I can't a see there's much more um, information in that than there is in an email. No, exactly. And I find right. that really hard. Yeah, absolutely. So, seeing as we've slightly moved on to China, let's completely move on to China, if that's okay. Um, can you can you just tell us what your actual position was out there and what your what your role was, what it entailed? Well, that's some really good titles. So. <laughs> I was started off as a regional director and I became an education director, which I thought mm. if you switch around the other way, director of education mm. sounded even better. <laughs> but um, there, there was two of us, uh, Bob, most other people weren't English, but Bob was English, although he'd spent his whole life on the international circuit. Um, he'd previously been a principal of a school in Tanzania. He'd come to China, he'd come to Hong Kong. So we had 14 schools uh, and we had seven each. So I got five in Shanghai and two in Beijing and he got all the others. So he had the one in Silicon Valley in California, Hong Kong, 
um, you know, Chongqing, Qingdao, Yantai, uh, Guangzhou, Rizhao. So I just, I wanted to go back to that way. I find it best working to people actually coming alongside people. Mm -hmm. It was historically a very sort of inspectorial type role. So you went to the school and met the principals. They have a an SLT made up of Chinese co-principal, Western co-principal, and school business manager. It's triune. Um, so you'd meet them. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something completely different, which is a bit out there, and I took a risk. But fortunately, the CEO liked it. So I flew to Shanghai, stayed in a hotel, and went to all the schools, and went in the schools and just said, I don't need an agenda. I'm just going to go out and spend time in classrooms. So I walked into the classroom, and they said, who are you? And I said, I'm Mark. I'm the uh, regional director. They said, we've never met one of them before. <laughs> so then I'd sit and talk to the students and listen to the lessons and just wander around and develop relationships with people. Um, so I did that all the time, which was great. Um, we had some problems in one school in a place called Chongshan, um, which is just between Hangzhou and Shanghai on the high-speed railway line. I mean, it's a place you've never heard of, 7 million people. It's a brand-new school, amazing school built for 2,000 students with 200 students in it. Fantastic facilities, wow. Olympic <laughs> swimming pool, you know, eight floors of um, boarding, huge dining rooms, just extraordinary, big thousand-seaters theatre you know it's just extraordinary so they were having some issues so I went and stayed there for a while and redesigned the curriculum and the way that learning was happening so it was very exciting working with people um, sometimes I had meetings in Hong Kong that I had to fly back to Hong Kong for I did a great uh, conference in Borneo which was great so it just sort of changes your perspective, a chance to visit different places and see different mm -hmm. things happening. Because we didn't have SATs and we didn't have Ofsted, and we had what I felt were really important values, a lot of them based around learning communities and project-based learning. So a lot of the environment that we're working in was designed for project-based learning. Um, you had teachers that were passionate about learning. So it was great to work with them. Which is not necessarily the model we would expect of Chinese schools, is it? I've, I've been to uh, Shanghai to schools and very much subject-based, but they were fascinated by what they knew we did in this country and that joined up nature. So were they doing that before you got there or that's what you led them to? No, it was a, that was what attracted me to it, you know. We can reflect, if you like, on why I went. <laughs> but one of the reasons I went was because I really had lost faith in what was happening uh, politically and within the education spectrum. Uh, the education, um, what was happening in England, and so I looked for an opportunity. And well, I didn't look for one, I found one. And uh, and I went. And, that you know, I, I brought my diary because it has the principles and practices, and it says... The core purpose of education is character formation and it is the most important shared responsibility of school and home. 
We believe that each child is unique with innate talents and gifts that should be nurtured to the fullest potential. We believe that quality student-teacher relationships are at the heart of meaningful engagement, leading to highly effective learning and teaching. We believe learning communities best enable students and teachers to creatively and holistically explore different fields of knowledge, fostering individual and collaborative learning skills that are critical for the 21st century. We believe in equipping our graduates with a deep respect for an understanding of world cultures, mastery of Chinese and English, plus proficiency in other modern languages, as well as a strong commitment to meeting challenges of their generation. No mention of SATs. <laughs> no mention of standards. You know, it's, we're going to inspire these children to work collaboratively to achieve their potential. Most people have done um, HSP when they have a real problem with the potential, but I did mention that a few times in the two years I've sat there. <laughs> I just thought that was great. Now, it's not perfect, a long way from it, and it's very different from the traditional Chinese model. But I was working for a private provider. People are used to spending money on education. They pay for their normal schools, but for this school, they paid a lot of money. Mm. And whatever you think of China, there is a growing, huge, growing, wealthy, middle-class population. Mm. Who and also look to the West for lots of things. I mean, you only have to be into Bistabili shopping and you'll know they want to shop here. But seriously, those sound you know, like values you believed in before you went that weren't necessarily Chinese educational values. Did they see those as a Western education model? Yeah, they wanted, you know, Citizens another of one of the models was around, uh, you know, East and West coming together. So you were learning Chinese, Mandarin or Cantonese. You were learning English. And you wanted your child to go to an overseas university because you felt that gave them the best chance to succeed in China. So they'd go to Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, wherever, and they'd come back to succeed in China because they could speak English and, um, and Chinese. And, you know, most people know somebody at university and whilst that might be the Chinese model of teaching, and it is very effective, when you get to university outside China, or even inside China in a lot of cases, that is not the way you are taught. And so therefore, the way you've been taught, you have no skills to allow you to adapt to that way of teaching. Okay, you know, 25% of my sons, um, he graduated this year, 25% of his final mark was based on how he collaborated with people he'd never met before, studying the same subject, putting together a presentation. Well, if you're used to this didactic, I tell you, you sit down, you write it down, you regurgitate it in an exam, how are you going to work collaboratively? How are you going to do this problem-solving skills? You know, um, Minecraft <laughs> is a good... You know, one of the students in Shanghai came back 25 years old, he had just sold his company to Microsoft because he builds most of their Minecraft stuff. You know, astonishing mm. ability. But they had that creativity to be able to do that. And some parents respond to that. Some parents said, yes, this is what I want. You're talking about an organisation that's been in place for 87 years, 88 years next week. So therefore... We're getting uh, 
students whose parents and grandparents studied at the school. So therefore there is that, and again in China that's very important, that you've got this history um, and this, these set of values, and they say, yeah, I want my child to come to this school because of what this does. What's the first thing? Character formation. We have somebody in charge of character development. With the experience that you've just described in China, Mark, and also we heard earlier your frustrations with the English system from a political point of view, and you mentioned SATs two or three times there as well. What lessons do you think there are from the Chinese model that you experienced for us here? I think it's too... It's difficult for me to answer that question because I wasn't working with the Chinese system. I was working with a private school provider within okay. China. So within the school they were working, there's huge pressures because the parents have paid a huge amount of money and want their child to succeed. Mm. What I was trying to do was to say, how can we blend those things together? Certainly the Chinese love learning and they see education as being very important we can't impose that on uh, english people <laughs> because that's a cultural thing mm. they are prepared to spend their last rmb on their child's education that probably isn't the priority for many people in england once you get that then it's about you know they want ranking and what i was trying to show was you know only one person can be first so therefore, we want people to feel successful. If we reflect back to what I ended up calling the programme, I was going to call it the Head Teacher Reflection Programme or whatever, HRT. <laughs> but I called it the Head Teacher Support Programme. And that's quite important because I wanted to support people. That's just my personal feeling. I feel that you work better if I work alongside you. So I don't tell you what to do with your class come into your class and I work with you. I feel that works well. So if you're a head teacher, I can work alongside you. If you're a teacher, I can work alongside you in your classroom. I feel that works well. Now, quite a lot of people, some people could remember some of the things we did was like looking at uh, marking, do some kind of marking audit, or, um, some kind of um, lesson observation or pupil progress meetings. Now, for the Chinese, this was a big thing. Because when I'm looking at your books, say you're a teacher in year six, I'm looking at your books. I'm trying to look at your maths books and see, okay, how are they marking in the Jonathan School? Oh, well, I can pinch some ideas from that. How are the students responding to that marking and so on and so on. The Chinese just see it as, you are looking at my books to find out what I'm doing wrong. Mm. They see it as a very negative thing. So when I observe your lesson, I'm not coming to help you to get better. I'm coming to find out what you are doing wrong. So it's a very negative thing. That's a cultural thing you have to work together to do. But if you manage that, and we did start to manage that, sort of a whole development, because you know most people want to get better. So therefore, you've got that willingness to want to improve. You then transfer that to the children and say, OK, learning is fun. So create this learning community in which they can develop their skills. So they have choices about who they worked with, what they did, where they worked, how they how, what sort of thing they produced. And that creativity is a lot. We can't do that because we're consigned to, they've got to know that 
by them because they're going to be tested on it mm. to jump through that hoop. And if we don't do that, then there's going to be negativity from Ofsted, from um, SAT scores or accountability in some way to the Regional Schools Commission or whoever. We didn't have that level yeah, of accountability. Yeah. We had the accountability to the parents, and because of that, the organisation said those results aren't good enough <laughs> because the parents aren't going to pay money mm -hmm. if we don't get this. Mm -hmm. But how you got there was up to you. And that's what I was passionate about trying to talk to people about. So many people will have followed your progress in China outside school, Mark, through your blog, Diary of Mark Aged. It started in 55, 57 now. It moved along <laughs> as you went, which was great. And you kept that going all the way through, didn't you? And it was Every fascinating. three weeks on a Friday, Is that, oh, was 29 that, was blogs. That, which included some extraordinary photographs of some of the food you were eating, which I can remember. Various fairly readily identifiable animals that looked like they were still well. It was difficult to tell whether they were still alive or not, wasn't it? In some they the were all dead. Were they? Yeah. Okay. Them. So tell us a bit about life out there. It's, I've never been to China, but it looks an amazing, amazing country. You look like you had some amazing experiences out there. Well, it is an amazing country. Um, it was. I loved all of it. Uh, I loved Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, my wife was born there, although she didn't actually stay there beyond a baby. So it was quite interesting to end up going back there. Um, people that know me, I don't really like the heat. And so it, it was hot all the time mm. with high humidity. Um, but I explored a lot of Hong Kong, uh, which was amazing. And the cuisine there is, is excellent. It's a very expensive place to live, but a very exciting place to live. So I really enjoy being there. Uh, I visited loads of places, but I like Shanghai. It's a very easy place to live if you're a Westerner. There's a lot of people who are non-Chinese there. And if you don't speak Chinese, you can get by quite easily there. But I actually enjoyed most of all Beijing, even though it is very Chinese and not easy to live in if you're not a Chinese person or don't speak Chinese, but I really enjoyed living there. So I had the chance to run a school there from August to Christmas and then again from uh, throughout May and June, although I did that remotely. Living there was amazing. Um, visiting the Great Wall, which is astonishing. Uh, a fantastic experience. And just going to loads and loads of places. I got an electric scooter, um, we went to watch football in the local pub, which was an Irish bar, and uh, we watched the World Cup, the uh, Rugby World Cup. And that was truly amazing because you've got all these people from all over the world in this pub. And my daughter came and she said, this person's from some reality TV program that stood in the pub. You know, so it's just a whole collection of people. One of the World Cup games we watched was South Africa against New Zealand, and they were all these big people dressed in, you know, the the kit of that particular country. They were shouting and bawling at the television, and yet fully embracing afterwards. Sounds like a pub not very far from my house, I have to say. <laughs> it was an astonishing experience, and I just 
most people that know me know that I like to eat mm-hmm. uh, and cook. So I could cook in Beijing because I was living in someone's apartment. So I had an oven. Most, uh, most apartments don't have ovens, but I had an oven so I could bake again, which was good. And when we went out, people just said, I'll oh, try this, try this, try this. So I did try everything just so I had the chance to mm-hmm. talk about it. And when anything went wrong, I just thought, oh, there's something else to write in the blog. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I did lots of things wrong. You know, lots of things went wrong. But the blog, you know, just gave yeah. material for the blog. It's a really entertaining and amusing read. And you're right, there are lots of anecdotes in there that are, that are extremely funny. The other thing that came across in the blog quite strongly for me was the scale of the place. You mentioned earlier in your conversation a little city nobody's ever heard of with seven million people in it, but the scale of the whole country is beyond anything I'm imagining, I think, isn't it? From yeah, it is extraordinarily large, yeah. and there are 1.4 billion people there. So it is huge and the way it works is extraordinary. Um, you know, Yantai, you probably haven't heard of. It's just on the coast opposite Korea. So you could almost uh, commute from Korea, and some some of the students almost do, you know. Um, but they've got a beach that's beautiful. It's 12 miles long. Wow. And there's a concrete road that you can cycle on or run on alongside this thing. And I went there and it was 30 degrees, the temperature. The, the sea was perfectly calm. And there were quite a few people on the beach digging for scallops, but there, were, there was nobody in the water at all. And there's 9 million people living in Yantai. It, it's just, it's really hard to explain what it was like. Because you just got, you, Hong Kong is a good example of 7.5 million people in a very confined space. And I mentioned this when I was there. There has been an outbreak since, but we're still not talking big numbers. But, you know, relatively speaking, COVID started not very far away from Hong Kong. And you've got 7.5 million people living in a very confined space. And up to the end of June, four people died and 1,055 people were infected. Since then, they've had another small outbreak. A few more people have died, which is obviously terrible. But when they had big measures, they were having 100 people a day infected. Yeah. <laughs> that was their headlines. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's back to very small numbers again. Mm. They've opened the schools again. But it's that ability to say, in China, you could say it's a little bit more... Um, they do things because they're frightened. There's a fear factor about what happens if you don't do it. But in Hong Kong... With regard to the COVID, is we do this because this is the best for everybody. So there is that compliance there that there isn't really in England. Yeah, I, I was into. I mean, before COVID um, struck, I remember communicating with you and, and getting a sense from your blogs a little bit that the political system does impinge on particularly communications a bit. Is that right? Your access to the internet and that sort of thing. Well, uh, most people in uh, Hong Kong would use. WhatsApp, yeah. but that doesn't work in in China. So you use WeChat, which obviously you've heard about on the news yeah. because um, Trump is trying to ban it, um, which he's been unable to do. So everything happens via WeChat in uh, China and uh, WhatsApp in Hong Kong. 
anything that they can't control, they don't allow in China. So uh, WhatsApp, because it's encrypted, uh, BBC News. So I'd be sat in the apartment watching the news <laughs> and then something had come on about Hong Kong and then and the screen would just go blank and you just think, oh, tell has gone wrong. <laughs> oh no, it's about Hong Kong. Um, so they do control the whole thing. And what you write on WeChat or in an email, you can be quite sure somebody somewhere is reading it. And of course you were out there for the protests, the worst of the protests before. Yeah. Yeah. So out there for the protests and also uh, the 70th anniversary celebration of uh, the Communist Party. So that was an amazing time to be in Beijing. Amazing experience. And the protests... Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to know what to say about that. I, I think, you know, we're not even halfway through the 50 years and already uh, Beijing and uh, China are imposing sanctions upon people who, who do protests. But up to that point, yes, a lot of the people who protested, as in walking down the roads, were young people but the strength of feeling runs right through the community. Right. So you'd speak to 70-year-old people or whatever, and they would all support what was happening. And there'd be a lot of people protesting. And it was never uh, OK to throw a brick. But in the great scheme of things, they were pushing over waste bins and throwing bricks and taking to pieces um, fencing side of the road but they weren't using bombs or guns or knives um, they were destroying what they believed to be Chinese property whether it be the transport system or Chinese owned shops um, it was a lot of people <laughs> extraordinary to see the post-it note but there would be thousands and thousands of post-it notes everywhere and all over the floor, pictures of the president, and you would be expected not to walk over the face of the president. And so things would be cleaned very quickly and cleaned up very quickly. But there was lots and lots of protest. Um, but that's all stopped now, I think, because of the action taken by uh, Beijing to mm -hmm. impose the new laws on China. So. Said, I remember you saying to me before, either before you came home or just after you came home, you were going to um, delete Twitter off your phone and you'd had enough. Have you done that? Yeah, you have. I did on the day I left China. Did you? So I haven't, I, I read the BBC News app on my phone, but yeah. I don't watch any news on the television and I don't read Twitter or anything else. I'm not in any social media at all. I'm just a much uh, more even tempered, uh, nicer person. So, <laughs> You've always been a very even-tempered, nice person. Nice so that, person, I'd say. I can, Definitely be a nice person. I, maybe I can sleep at night. <laughs> so, well, that leads us on. Do you mind telling everybody what you're doing now or what you're, what you're up to now? Yeah, uh, for the last three months, I've been doing different projects in the garden. Um, I'm very, They're very extensive. Oh, it's got a lovely garden. There's a lot of it. I'm very, I'm very blessed. I have a, an acre of, of land. I've just built a shed huge shed, four metres by five metres, which I'm very proud of. 
I, I cycle around and look for skips. So I take a lot of wood out of skips and build things out of pallets and different wood that You're I've got. You're a thirdler. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the long-term project is to do unpaid voluntary work. Um, I, I really like cooking. And I really like working in the garden. So I've got about 20 raised beds and two greenhouses and a huge 50-square-metre um, fruit cage. So... I'm hoping to work with probably uh, men who suffer from some kind of mental illness and help them to get gardening skills and grow things and then um, use those fruits and vegetables to make things. So I'm going to do cookery and stuff like that with them. I'm involved in a food bank in uh, the church I go to. So it's exciting doing things for people. Um, and yeah, I've got grandchildren who are with us five days a week, so I cycle them to school in the morning and cycle and get them back at night. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really very blessed life. So I'm very... been fantastic Mark um, catching up with you and hearing what you're up to now and getting you to reflect on what you've been doing for the last well just the last two years for the last 20 odd years I guess um, absolutely fascinating thank you so much for for talking to us um, good to have you back it certainly is yeah absolutely and I'm sure all of the head teachers who are listening to this who've worked with you over the years and have got very fond memories of HSP and are, and are, will, and, and are very grateful to you for the work you did with them will be We'll be pleased to hear uh, uh, to hear about what you're up to, and, and, and we're we wishing say, you well. Not surprised that what sings through is the moral purpose behind absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Thank it you. Continues to. Uh, thank you, Mark. Oh, that's been fantastic. And next week, yes, next week our special guest will be MP Chloe Smith. We'll be talking to Chloe here. Of she's the MP in your school constituency yep, not and my much. house. Uh, thank so, you, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. What's the week ahead, Hot? Oh, any, um, any, same. <laughs> any, any birthday parties coming well, up? Well, I was telling Jonathan earlier that we had a family send some birthday invitations into school today and ask us to give them out, and we counted and there were 12, so we thought possibly <laughs> in the world of the rule of six, <laughs> not the best way forward. So, yeah, so, um, uh, the little be, moments we doing that. COVID craziness. <laughs> right. OK, well, thank you very much, everybody at home, for listening. And uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mark. And we will see you all again next week. Take care, everyone. Goodbye.